Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change? All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates. Melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com. Let's get brave. Welcome to our interview series on Brave Feminine Leadership. I am very excited today to introduce you to Michael Abid. Michael, thank you for joining me. It's an absolute pleasure. It's great. Nice to uh, have a break from all the COVID lockdown stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Michael, I am going to provide our audience with a quick sort of background of you before I hand over to you. So let me kick off by saying that Michael is a CEO with more than 30 years experience across the technology, telecommunications and media sectors. Michael has most recently been the group executive of Enterprise at Telstra, where he was responsible for a growing business with revenues of over 8 billion and more than 8,000 employees. Prior to Telstra, Michael was the CEO and managing director of SBS where he launched market-leading digital services like SBS On Demand. I'll just give you a personal thank you for that. It's been particularly useful during COVID, um, which now has over 9 million registered users, uh, which is incredible. Prior to that, Michael was the Director of Marketing and Strategy at the ABC. In 2017, Michael was awarded a member of the Order of Australia for his services to broadcast media and multicultural affairs. And in 2017, a busy year, Michael, he was also named the CEO of the year by the CEO magazine's Executive of the Year Awards. So I have taken a lot, left a lot out of your bio. You've been incredibly busy, but it's wonderful to have you here. I'm going to just say for the audience, before I hand to you, Michael, is I had not met you before the uh, interview series, before we connected for this. But I had been in the audience on the night that you received the CEO of the Year Award. And it was very memorable for me. And it was the energy and excitement and passion that you brought into the room that night. Um, it was a pretty special day that day. You had flown in from Sydney. You were maybe running a little late for the awards night, but with a very good excuse. A lot um, <laughs> we might take everyone back to the fact that that was the, the day that the marriage equality vote um, came through and, and you were on top of the world. So welcome. Tell me all about you and who you are and you can, you can start anywhere you like. Wow. Thank, thank you so much. And, you know, it, you, you've taken me back to what was a very special night in, in, in November back in 17. Um, you know, when when you've fought so hard for so long for something like equality um and then you know the rest of australia votes in favor of it it was a very emotional evening mm -hmm. and then to cap it off that night the ceo awards um it was a pretty special day as you say so it was wonderful that you were there in the audience and remember it it's fantastic i do thank you for having me um and so you've asked me to sort of just start off by talking a little bit about my journey and my career. Um, and the easiest way to think about my career is I've spent 10 years in technology with IBM. I've had 10 years um, then in telco with Optus originally. Uh, and then I went into media for about 10 years um, and then had a brief stint at the end um, with Telstra back into telco, very much in that telecommunications, media, and of course, those three things in terms of telco, media, and technology are all converging now. Mm. And I've really been able to take the learnings from that from one sector to another throughout my career, which has been um, very helpful in, me in many ways, uh, because as I say, they're all converging. But my uh, story, I guess, starts as a typical migrant story. My parents came to Australia in the late 60s, um, I was a couple of years old as a, as a young baby. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a very much a migrant story in that they wanted their kids to have a better life and, and be able to really take advantage of the wonderful things that Australia can offer. And uh, that we did, I guess, in, in so many different ways. Um, 
I had my first job uh, at the age of 15, packing supermarket um, groceries at the end of a checkout. Um, I'm going to age myself a little bit, but back in, in those days, um, girls were always on the till, on the cash register, I think mainly because boys couldn't be trusted. And then the boys were always at the back packing the brown paper bags and we used to carry them out uh, for what was mostly the housewives and put them in their cars. And I learned very quickly if I was super nice, I would get a 20 cent tip. Um, and that was pretty exciting. Um, and, you know, I then went on to Grace Brothers. And for those of your audiences who are uh, a little bit younger, might not remember Grace Brothers, it's now Myers. Um, and again, uh, you know, I learned the value of working and um, money very early on uh, when I was 15 with my early jobs. And I guess my parents really instilled that in me as well, because they had a real work ethic. Mm. Uh, I saw growing up, um, my, both my parents worked um, very often. They would do a lot of overtime to bring extra income into the household. And, you know, that was really important as, as migrants because often you come to Australia uh, with not a lot. Um, and so my parents really taught me that real sense of work and ethic and the importance of that. Um, and then I went to university. I had this great opportunity uh, to decide where I wanted to go. And I made a decision that I wanted to actually go to university away from home. Um, and I went to um, Charles Sturt University in Bathurst in oh, New South. Wow. And I wanted the opportunity to just, you know, learn to be independent, get my own place, you know, the ripe old age of 18. Um, and that was, uh, I think, really uh, important for me to really find my own feet and, and get some independence, which um, I think living away at university does. Um, you know, Zara, my mum, I don't think she quite understood it because at the time we lived about a 10 minute walk from Macquarie University. She didn't quite understand why I wasn't going to go there. Um, but straight out of university, I had my first career role at IBM Australia. Um, I was fortunate to be employed as part of their graduate intake, a fantastic opportunity as a graduate to work in IBM because they really invest in their graduates, which I've always taken in every company that I've gone in. I've tried to invest in graduates, and I think it's an important part of starting people out in their career. IBM also invests a lot in training and moving you around. So I spent in my first 10 years at IBM time in finance, time in marketing, time in sales. And it really helped me understand the different parts of an organisation and how it worked. Um, that together with the technology training. Um, again, I'll age myself a little bit, but I did some exciting things like I was around at IBM when we launched the very first PC. Oh. Um, I remember people debating why you'd want a PC at home. It would only ever be a business thing, people would say. Um, and then, of course, launching the very first laptops were pretty exciting as well. And I ended my career at IBM after 10 years working in the PC company uh, for Steve Vamos, who now runs uh, Zero. Absolutely. Uh, the, the downside of IBM was that it was a very conservative company. Men had to wear navy suits, white shirts. Women could not wear trousers. Women had to wear skirts and women had to wear stockings. It was in black and white. It was actually in the staff manual. And now we're only talking late 80s, right? Wow. And I remember a woman once coming to work in a very lovely pantsuit with trousers and she was sent home. Um, and, you know, you had to, and they actually specified how far below the knees your skirt had to be. That gives you a sense of the sort of environment. Now, as a young man in, in my 20s, um, I got to see leadership in all its forms, the good, the bad, the ugly. The late 80s was very much around um, command and control leadership. Yes. yes. Uh, it was very much uh, sometimes ruled by fear. And as a young man who was really, you know, struggling with my own sexuality at the time as well, what I found was it was just impossible to be myself. Mm. And what tended to happen was I would want to stay below the radar. 
I would be in meetings. I wouldn't want to draw attention to myself. I just want to, you know, stay below the radar so that nobody really would look at me or wonder or guess or suggest that I might have been a, a gay guy. Yeah. Um, but also there at IBM were some, you know, very modern, wonderful leaders who, again, were real contrast to that old school command and control leadership. And, um, you know, when I told my very first manager, um, well, actually, I'll just back up a bit. My manager came to me saying he'd heard a rumour and he said, look, I don't care if you're gay or not, but I don't suggest you come out because if you do, your career will be over. Nobody will want to hire you and nobody will promote you or have you in their team. So that was pretty traumatic for a young guy. But I then um, had a female boss a couple of, about two years later who was very encouraging um, in, in all, all, you know, encouraging in, in putting your ideas forward. She very much was a leader that um, didn't rule by fear at all. And, you know, she stood out from the pack because she was a woman who inspired respect because one of the things that I remember about her was that she didn't try and behave like the men. She didn't try and be a tough nut and a yeller and a screamer and a table thumper, which, you know, in the 80s that happened a lot. Uh, And um, so that was really helpful for me and I got to see that contrast in leadership that you could be um, empathetic you could be encouraging motivating and inspiring without being um, a bully mm. in, in, and you know that really those days looking around and there was lots of really good men of course I'm not just I'm just pointing out those two but it really in my 20s helped me look around and decide what sort of leader I wanted to be when I got the opportunity Um, because I realised early on that you could motivate people far more by inspiring and encouraging than by um, ruling by fear. And I think that really helped shape a little bit of who I am today, but it also in that period helped give me my love for technology. You know, being involved with IBM in in those uh, late 80s and early 90s days, there there was a lot there to, to get involved in technology. So after those 10 years, um, I then went to Optus, uh, to this little startup company nobody had heard of. It was an Australian company. After 10 years working for a big multinational like IBM, I really wanted to work for an Australian company where decisions were made here. That was such a big difference for me. That was how I got my own career break there, Michael. Optus arrived on the scene and all of a sudden Telstra had to hire a heap of people to uh, telemarket and sell Telstra's plans into the marketplace. And uh, I was at university at the time and enter enter the start of my career. So I remember Optus arriving very well. Mm. So um, that was a fantastic 10-year ride there. You know, we I joined when the company was about... Um, probably less than a thousand people and I left when it was about 12,000 revenues probably were um, four or five hundred million dollars in revenue when I joined and left when it was about say seven billion Mm. and wonderful ride and and you know one of the things when you're hiring that many people in those early days we had this fantastic CEO Bob Mansfield you may know and some of you may know Bob Bob had this thing where he'd say to you, you know, just make decisions, make them quickly, you know, look at what you've got to do. And if you get, you know, seven out of 10 right, great, learn from the three, figure out what went wrong and make the next 10. But don't pontificate, we haven't got time. And that really helped my ability in decision making because we had to run so quickly. And again, you know, when you're growing that fast, Um, In my career, I was involved in so many different things that I may not have had that experience had I been in a larger organisation, say, if I joined Telstra, that's where my job would have been much smaller, more defined. 
um, because the jobs are just so big in those bigger companies. Mm. Um, but again, you know, in Optus days, I had um, amazing opportunities, not only launching the first analog mobile phones, but digital mobiles. You know, I still remember when we launched uh, the first SMS messages and we would debate about why would anyone want to send a text message, you know, and would anyone actually spend 25 cents a message? Um, and we did this crazy thing of giving away SMSs initially so people could get hooked. And of course, people got hooked really quickly. And then we turned on the meter yes. and it was five cents a pop. And all of a sudden, overnight, you know, we were making $80 million of revenue just from SMSs. Um, it was an amazing thing. And of course, dial up internet and then cable internet and, and all of that. So I've been really fortunate to have seen technology evolve and um, been a part of that and, and that growth of Optus. After Optus, um, it was Singtel bought Optus uh, after my 10 years there. And it was really a very different organisation. It went back to being led by a company abroad. Yes. Um, Decision-making changed a little bit. And so I thought it was time for me uh, to move on at that point. Um, I then went the complete opposite way and joined uh, a little startup company where one of the big shareholders asked me to be the CEO of a company called Two Way Limited. Uh -huh. um, 20, 30 people. Um, we did a fantastic, successful IPO uh, and then really grew the business into Asia. And it was an interactive TV, gaming, gambling company. And after all the exciting stuff happened of a successful IPO, raising funds, and then hiring and growing the business, I then very quickly realised that I wasn't passionate about what I did. And the reason was that the company was very much around interactive gaming and gambling. Right. And I'm either a gambler or a gamer. Mm. And I just wasn't proud of what I was doing every day. And, you know, the the appeal of having my first CEO job and, you know, doing an IPO and a startup was really exciting and sexy. But once that had happened, mm. um, I really realised that I needed a stronger purpose in what I did in my career. Um, and fortunately, the company was acquired by a major competitor. And so I was able to do a fantastic exit of that business. Um, and, you know, we all did very well out of that. And, and then um, uh, I, I had this opportunity. I was working with BCG on a project for Westpac uh, as a consultant for a while. Um, and they said to me, hey, there's this job going at the ABC um, and we think you might be really good for it. You should go meet the CEO, Mark Scott. And I was like, oh, you know, public broadcasting's not really for me. Um, and I met Mark and he really wanted somebody who was semi-commercial like me, who understood um, media because in my last days at Optus, I was running the pay TV business. And I had the okay. channels reporting to me. And one of the things that Singtel uh, when they bought the company, they wanted to get out of content and they asked me to then sell the pay TV business to Foxtel, which we did. It was a, a big deal. There was a lot of people involved in that transaction. Um, so I did enjoy media. And so I went to the ABC and, um, and worked on a whole lot of uh, digitization programs, but also launch new digital channels and really helped the ABC a bit more commercial on some of the things that they wanted to do. We launched the news channel, the kids channel, that sort of thing. And of course, iView, uh, the very first streaming service. Again, um, you know, amazing streaming technology that hadn't been done before in this country. I'll issue another thank you at that point. We, uh, yeah, we, you know, way before Netflix ever came around. And again, I remember people debating, you know, why would you ever watch television on a small screen? You know, and here we all are constantly watching content now on small screens. But um, after a couple of years at the ABC, I was then tapped on the shoulder by the chairman of SBS to be the CEO of SBS. And, um, you know, it was interesting. He, he, Joe Skrinsky was the chairman. He's the founder of Champ Private Equity, an amazing, smart man. Um, 
and one of the real appeals of taking that job was working with somebody who, who I could really learn from and partner well with. And I think that's really important when you've got that mm. combination uh, in a CEO and a chair. And that opportunity was um, a huge career break for me that really allowed me to test my own leadership, to test my uh, being able to put my own mark on the organisation. Um, and I have to say, when I joined SBS, um, it had pretty low market share, um, low audience reach, um, and its culture was pretty bad. Uh, audi- uh, t- uh, employee engagement was in the mid 40s. Um, and I knew that what I wanted to do with SBS was make it really relevant to Australians, not just multicultural Australians, but all Australians. Everyone so that all Australians could understand cultural diversity and diversity in all its forms, not just multiculturalism. And so I set out um, initially making sure that we had a fantastic purpose for the organisation that employees could get behind, Mm. a really inspiring purpose. And that really worked and it resonated with our employees because we didn't really have an inspiring purpose before that we had our charter from the government which was boring as bad stuff um and you know a charter is very different to a inspiring purpose and i quickly realized that i wouldn't be able to achieve anything in the company until we changed our culture first and so we where did you start sorry where did you start so we started on our culture and I, I, I pulled people out from across the business, from television, from radio, from the newsroom, from marketing, technology, et cetera, and formed a culture team. And we did a couple of surveys across the whole organisation to understand what was our existing culture. And then I got this team to say, hey, what is the culture that we need if we really want to be successful and double our audience share? and audience reach and increase our commercial revenues, what sort of culture do we need to have? And we did that and we could see that the two were really very different. Mm. And so we built a plan of how we're going to get from one to the other. And we achieved that in about 18 months, um, well ahead of my expectations. And then we got employee engagement up to 80% from mid-40s, which um, I was really, really proud of because... What I didn't appreciate at the time when I started this journey was it also meant that our workforce was happier. People were coming to work happier. They were going home happier. Um, And that was something that I was really proud of because employees would stop me and say, you know, I'm really enjoying the company more. I'm enjoying my job more. I understand where I fit in. I understand what our vision and direction and priorities are of the company and therefore I can contribute to it and that just gave people a stronger sense of purpose. Part of the change of culture is also around uh, diversity because in media it does tend to be very blokey Mm -hmm. and um, you know I'm not a real blokey guy I'm not a golfer I'm not a footballer um, and I need to have a team around me that is really diverse because I can really appreciate when you do that, that you get very different ideas come to the fore. And I'm a big believer that nobody's ever got the best good idea, that the best ideas I always think are bits and pieces of people's contributions and you, you know, you build off somebody's idea and it might not be quite right, but that then builds on somebody else's and you, Mm -hmm. Somebody will add to it. And, and that's what makes fantastic ideas in organisations. And that only happens when you've got people who don't all think the same. Can I ask, and you that had extraordinary important. extraordinary success um, in what you did there. Can I just ask, and it's, it's taking you way back in your comments around at IBM, not being comfortable to be yourself mm. and even having someone say to you, you know, don't be yourself because, mm. you know, no one will, will um, you know, want you to um, 
succeed, essentially, is the message I'm hearing out of that. At what point in your journey did you become comfortable with that? When could you be yourself? Yeah, I think once I was out at work and I didn't have to worry about the gossip, the innuendos, whether, you know, because I'd seen it done to other people and how it could destroy somebody's confidence. Um, once I didn't have to worry about that, I could then step up in meetings and contribute. And I didn't care what people thought after a while. But when you're in those formative early years and you're unsure about yourself, mm. um, it can be really hard. And I've seen that also in, um, you know, various men and women in, in the workforce where I think as a good leader, when you see somebody who's really quiet, it's so important to be able to encourage them to speak up and say, hey, Melissa, you know, you've been quiet for the last hour. What do you think? Not that I can imagine you being quiet, Melissa, but, um, you know, that's really important part of leadership in a room to, to get people out of their shell and, and um, get a little bit uncomfortable sometimes by putting yourself out there because if you don't put yourself out there, then you're just a seat warmer in the room and you're not really contributing to the conversation, to the meeting, to the ideas. Um, but what I personally found in my journey was when I did come out and I wasn't worried about anything any longer, um, it meant that I could flourish and I could just put my energy into work, put my energy into the ideas, into my creativity, um, not use my energy to hide who I was um, and using up wasteful energy uh, in terms of trying to, you know, cover up or lie or, you know, if I went out with a bunch of guys on the weekend, I, Monday morning I'd be, uh, you know, I went out with Stephanie instead of Stephen and, you know, all those ridiculous things that people do. But it's the reality of that era. Yeah. And um, it fascinates me um, so many different things out of that. But, you know, so many people are um, in work environments where, you know, perhaps they're, they're one of, you know, only female, um, you know, only black person, only in, insert whatever it is that um, is the... No. Um, and, um, you know, have those feelings often around, um, you know, I'm not enough or um, people won't accept me or I can't be my true self. I just want to know how did you, what yeah. was the tipping point for you from that sort of bravery perspective of saying, I'm, I'm going to be myself? Yeah. Um, you know, all minority groups struggle with fitting in, whether you're a woman in a room full of men and, you know, I've seen that a lot and I'm sure some of your listeners have as well, um, whether you're an Asian person in a room full of Caucasians, yeah. etc. This feeling of am I going to be accepted, do I fit in, is, is, is really important. And I think all minority groups, whether it's gender, sexuality, race, need allies mm. to help them. Just as with gender diversity, I think you need men who are willing to change the status quo. Gay people need their allies to change society and the status quo. Gay people can't achieve gay rights on their own. Yeah. Women cannot achieve gender equality on their own. And so for me, um, you know, the tipping point, I think, was having that manager say to me that your career will go nowhere and no one will want to hire you. And I just wanted to prove him wrong. Yes. And, you know, I did go inward for a while after I got that message. Yeah. But then I sort of came out a bit fighting and I felt there was a drive in me that I had something to prove. And um, maybe that's driven me a little bit throughout my career, I don't know, because, uh, you know, there hasn't been a lot of 
you know, publicly out CEOs uh, up until the last, you know, probably five, yes. 10 years. Uh, when I became CEO of SBS, um, you know, every other article was, you know, openly gay CEO, Michael. I mean, you know, why did that? Nobody ever starts an article with, you know, openly heterosexual Tom so-and-so, you know. Just like female female entrepreneur. Yeah, it it was just ridiculous, right? I mean, um, it was so ridiculous. But um, I remember sitting down with my husband having a conversation about, am I going to be out and proud from day one or are we going to stay, you know, we had to talk. But um, there wasn't, uh, I think there was, probably one or two other other you know gay CEOs and so um it was a it was something that I felt um allowed me to have a voice for the community as well um and I've tried to you know where where appropriate have a voice um I tried using well I did use my voice in my role uh when I was the CEO of SBS and um I remember being given a really hard time about it at Senate Estimates by a couple of um, horrible right-wing Fruit Loops like Senator Erica Betts, who, um, you know, tried to give me a hard time about being named on the AFR. Uh, you know, the AFR yes. does this and they did a, you know, one of those top 50 LGBT executives. And I was on the with a couple of other people and, I'll never forget him holding up the magazine and Senate estimates saying, are you proud to be on this front cover? Because, you know, you're using your public position. And I'm like, well, if I was a female CEO and it was a top AFR, top 50 female leaders, would you be holding this magazine up? Mm. You know, um, and times like that really drove me even harder because I just thought, you know, hey, come on, it's, it's, it's the 21st century. Mm. what's the um no, we still have a lot of that unfortunately we do what what is the um hardest hardest is the wrong thing but of all the jobs you've stepped into which one do you think required the most bravery to take on well i mean bravery is an interesting word right yeah. um i think from a the, the sbs job is definitely a very public role um, you are the public face of a public institution. Everybody feels that they have some sort of ownership of public broadcasting and have an opinion on it too. Um, and so you did have to really, I did have to really put myself out there. Sometimes um, I would be attacked for a news story or by one community over another. Um, you know, if there was a story about Palestine, I might have been attacked by some members of the Jewish community, or if we ran a positive Jewish story, I'd be attacked by people who were, you know, from, it was just, um, it could have been all those things. And when you're in one of those roles, you can never keep everybody happy. Mm. And you're constantly needing to justify your decisions, explain things, defend the organisation, and where it needed to um, sometimes apologise if we didn't get something right. I think that's super important. And, um, you know, I I think I used to get a lot of respect from various communities when we would say, actually, we didn't get that right. Mm. It wasn't as balanced as it could have been or whatever. But, you know, I I was really proud, um, you know, in my time at SBS, particularly in the last five years, we rarely got ever got accused of political bias or cultural bias or religious bias. Mm. Um, you know, we tried very hard to do what public broadcasting is meant to do, which is be truly independent and, and unbiased. Why do you think, and this is about you, not about any of the jobs in particular, mm. but why do you think you have been so successful in your career? Um, I think, firstly, you you do have to be brave in every job, Um, you know, putting ideas and creativity forward and taking risks. Um, I I think just wanting to 
um, grow, have a vision for what you're trying to achieve is super important. And being able to articulate that vision so people can support you and the organisation and what you're trying to achieve. I think that, I mean, you can't be successful without an amazing team, without an amazing organisation that achieves things. I mean, you know, I didn't double our audience reach. I didn't do all those things. Um, I was just at the front of the organisation. And I think... Um, if you can do that in a leadership role, you can be successful. You can't be a leader and not change things and not improve things. Mm. You're just a middle manager if you do that. And I think that's part of being a good leader is doing things that nobody else is doing, mm. think about things that nobody else is doing, um, pushing the boundaries and, importantly, getting the most out of everyone around you pushing the boundaries of what they think that they can do. And I've coached a lot of women over the years where it's been a, often an, a recurring theme where they say, well, how do you put yourself out there more? How do you stretch yourself? Because often, um, and, you know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, um, a lot of people will say that men will often you know, very bolshily go into a role and they may only have 80% of the skills required for the job and say, no, I can do this. Whereas some women might have 90% of the skills and say, hey, I don't have that last 10%. Absolutely. And we've got to change that dynamic. Um, and I often, um, when I'm talking to a lot of the female leaders that I've had the great pleasure of, of supporting and working with and encouraging, is thinking about things in your job or outside your job within your organization where you can stretch yourself take on things that you might not think you've got all the answers for or you've got all the skills for but it's the only way to grow you know to answer your question about you know being successful well you know if, if you don't keep growing and, and trying different things then um, you know, how do you actually then take that next step and lead bigger teams, bigger organisations, new projects? Michael, you shared with me um, an experience you had where I think it was a women in media conference and you were the only male in the room. Talk us, talk us through that. Oh, um, yeah, it was a few years ago. Every year um, there's a Women in Media conference. Um, used to be on the Gold Coast. I'm not sure. I'm sure it's all online now. Um, and I was asked to come and talk about how I had achieved uh, increasing um, female representation at the executive level at SBS to 50-50. And indeed, when I looked at the top 100 leaders at SBS, we had about 52% female in the top 100. Um, and there was all this outrage um, when I was on the schedule about, you know, why do we need men um, telling us, you know, um, how to do things in a women in media conference? And, of course, the organisers were very quick to back the reasons and, hey, you know, Michael's changed things, we, we can listen to some of the things that he did in his organization and take those learnings back to our organization and it was it was um quite confronting being in a room i have to say of some 400 plus women um and in in another sense it also felt very comfortable as well because i've always been a, a champion um of women in leadership in every sense. And, and, and so it felt really comfortable in one sense and in another, you kind of felt like a bit of fish out of water. And it was such a good experience for me because it made me realize what it's like for a lot of women mm. in a lot of sectors, in male dominated sectors, when they might be the only female in the room. Yeah. And it really gave me a sense of what that was like. But um, 
I was really proud at the end of my talk. Um, you know, there was an amazing standing ovation. I don't think I said anything terribly earth shattering, but I think they just really appreciated that I'd made the effort despite the controversy of being there and sharing my views and sharing um, what I had done to encourage uh, women in media into different roles. I was really proud. SBS now has the first female news and current affairs director. Um, and, um, you know, Mandy Wicks was a wonderful executive. And I remember the very first time I suggested, you know, why don't, she was the director of radio. Um, and I remember the first conversation about, hey, I think you could take on news and current affairs. She was a journalist by profession, um, but um, she's now thriving in, mm -hmm. in that role. I'm really, really proud of her. Um, and again, you know, there was some younger middle management, uh, women in middle management who I felt could take on the CFO role or take on the HR role. Um, but often I found myself having to talk them into applying, which I thought there's something in that. How do we change that dynamic? Um, and so uh, we set up a, um, a, a, uh, a cohort of women at SBS um, who were in that top 100 leadership. And we created programs, leadership programs um, around how to find your voice, how to speak up in meetings, when you find it confronting or when somebody puts you down um, in a meeting, how do you say, hang on a minute, mm. I haven't finished or whatever. Um, I've been on a couple of boards and I see it even now at, in board meetings. There was a couple of years ago, I was in a board meeting where I had to say to the chairman, I'm not sure you realise that you speak over all the women around the board table, but not the men. Wow. And he was horrified that I said that. Um, in the sense that he was unaware of it, I assume. Totally yeah. unaware. Yeah. Totally unaware. But the women on the board were all very aware of it because we talked about it later. Um, and sometimes it just takes somebody to speak up and to say, hey, you may not really, you know, not in a confronting way, but in a, you know, constructive way of, hey, you might not realise you're doing this or making that woman uncomfortable or making me uncomfortable. Um, whether you're a woman saying it, stepping up for other women, or whether you're a guy who's seeing this, I think it's really important to speak up about things that aren't right uh, in, in the workplace, um, just as it is with anything. Michael, I'm going to change tack a little bit. I think there's some fantastic things you've said there that are super important, I think, for leaders to be conscious, aware of the impact on others, and also to, to help others in terms of, you know, actively suggesting and, and putting ideas in people's heads about how far they could stretch. You know, I think mm -hmm. they're all very important. I had a conversation, um, another conversation as part of this series with um, Hunter Johnson from the Man Cave, and we I were talking about... Um, the, he does work with adolescent um, men, boys, you know, 12 to sort of 16-year-olds. And one of the conversations we, we were having, I think a lot of this change we're talking about is, you know, there's a long game in it. Um, and the long game is, you know, making sure that we are influencing people at younger ages and those sorts mm -hmm. of things. And our conversation, which was just fascinating, also talked about the fact that it's a really difficult time um, you know, as far as masculinity is involved. And a lot of these adolescents are getting a lot of messages that are entirely appropriate around mm. consent and a whole range of other things. But a lot of them are all around the what you can't do. And there's mm. not a lot of messaging that says, well, what is a, what is a good man in 2021? And, you know, I just wonder, does that spark any comment from you around whether it be role models or... Um, you know, because I think it's it's very much like the conversation we're having around females and gender. You can't be what you can't see. Yeah. You had to overcome someone telling you directly that your career was going to fold if you owned who you were. And at the same time, we've still got a whole heap of adolescents coming up with a kind of 
you know, toxic masculinity, um, you know, is, is still very present. What do you make of all of those threads of conversation? Yeah, look, I do think it's critically important to get to young men early on this topic. Um, often young boys growing up do see the wrong things that instill the stereotypes of, you know, dad never washes the dishes, doesn't contribute to the domestic side of the house. So therefore there's the roles of the sexes. Yes. I was really fortunate having, you know, my parents came from Egypt, Middle Eastern and, you know, often Middle Eastern men are accused of being misogynist and, and very much so generally speaking. Yes. But I was really fortunate. I grew up in a family where dad, I reckon for most of my life, did the dishes every single night if mum cooked. Yes. It was just, you know, his way of contributing. That was very unusual in a Middle Eastern household. Mm. And, you know, in the same sense, um, ironically, my father also did all the ironing, right? Only because his father owned a laundromat back in Egypt. And so he'd been ironing since he was, you know, old enough to read the ironing table. Yep. And probably and so, much, much, much better at it. Yeah. And so, you know, I grew up in this household that um, didn't have those stereotypes. Mm. And I think that probably helped shape me a little bit as well in that, um, you know, mum worked right, I mentioned earlier, you know, right, right through my growing up. Um, and so I didn't have that view. Now today, you know, I, I see it a lot. Um, I also, by the way, don't, I'm not a big supporter. I went to a boys' school and I really think, um, you know, co-ed schools are much better because boys on their own continue thinking and, and they really feed off each other in terms of that toxic masculinity only to get to an age of, you know, 16 and then 17 and 18 where they sometimes actually don't know how to interact and respond to, to women. Mm. Um, Whereas um, I think in co-ed schools, you've just got the sexes all around you. It's almost an unnatural environment. I'm probably a lot of people disagree with me, yep. but I really think there's something in that because when you think about some of the reports that we have seen over the last two years of some of the allegations and things that have come out and some of the scandals, um, you know, it's not always obviously from single sex schools, but um, it's a factor. It's mm -hmm. a factor of how our society segregates the sexes at an early age and then all of a sudden expect them to um, interact and behave appropriately. Mm -hmm. uh, but we've probably gone down a whole different rabbit hole. But I do think we need to start early. And I think all of us adults need to encourage um uh, younger boys and girls in terms of what is good, not just what is bad. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I've, um, I've had my share of pulling up younger men, um, whether it be my own family, whether it be sons of friends, when I've seen things. Um, and they look at you like you're some sort of old fuddy-duddy. What do you mean I can't make that joke to my sister or whatever? Yeah. I think those ads that are on at the moment about calling things out are absolutely brilliant. I think they're spot on. Um, but I still see it all the time. I'm sure we all do. Um, whether it's Saturday morning sports on the side, you know, calling, you know, you kicked like a girl or you, you know, you did this like a girl you know like it's some sort of negative yeah. um, you know that that language is you know got to change I, I remember being at the gym recently and my trainer said to me oh come on that's a girl's way you know and I was like well you know <laughs> so it's it, it's just inbred in a lot of us and I think over 
over time, hopefully the next generation will be different. Did you respond by saying that good? Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Michael, yeah. um you said something like I'm building up to doing girls weights or something. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I'm um I'm taking you back a little bit to leadership because I just want to be clear. I just want to get your sort of clear advice on it. Mm. Um, what questions do you think people should ask themselves to improve their leadership? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I'm really passionate about good leadership. Mm. I actually think in corporate Australia and probably around the world, we have really bad leadership. Survey after survey tells us that 90% of people resign from a job yeah. because of their boss, yep. 90%. So what are we doing wrong, right? And so we need to ask ourselves that. And so when I talk to a lot of groups about leadership, I always ask people to think about their leadership brand. Mm. What is the leadership brand that you want to be, Right. How do you want to be remembered? How do you want your people to describe you as a leader? But then do this. Get your teams together, either through survey or get them in a room and ask them, and then leave the room, but ask them to talk about you as a leader and how do they see you in terms of your leadership brand. It can be really confronting, yeah. but every time I've asked, groups of leaders to do this i would say 80 to 90 percent of leaders find out that people have a different view of them of the view that you have of yourself mm. right we think of ourselves in a certain way and often it's not how some of our team members think of us so um work out what sort of leader you want to be find out where you are today as a leader and then see what you need to bridge. What sort of plan do you need to build to get you from where you are today to the sort of leader that you want to be? Mm. What change? What help do you need? Do you need a coach? Do you need, um, you know, some mentors? Do you need to go on some courses to think differently about leadership? That is really, really important, I think, in terms of, understanding what sort of leader you are and, and where you want to be. When you think of leaders, you know, I, I, I sometimes talk about um, think, think of the good leaders you've had and the bad leaders that you've had, as I did in, in the early part of my career, or maybe even think about global leaders. You know, if I compare, say, Churchill to Nelson Mandela to, say, you know, George W. Bush Sr. There were mm -hmm. three global leaders who had three very different styles. Mm -hmm. I think about Churchill, who was a bull in a china shop, you know, ruled by fear. He was, you know, a real formidable character versus a Mandela, who was a much softer natured, who was an inspiring individual who had a very different way of leading his nation versus, say, George W. Bush, who many say was a seat warmer, didn't achieve much. You know, what sort of leader out of, you know, do you want to be in your organisation? Um, and do that exercise because I think, you know, that can be really um, powerful. But I'd also say, you know, the second thing is most leaders, in my experience, underestimate the impact and the shadow that they cast on their teams, mm -hmm. the impact that they have on their people. Most leaders underestimate that. And I really encourage leaders to have conversations with your people, with your teams, about the impact that you're having on them because all of us are very, very different. Yeah. Some people love to be... Um, managed closely tightly tell me what i need to do um you know they don't mind being looked over there want micromanagement other people like bugger off leave me alone just give me the task let me at it i'll fix it i'll do it and it's important to know how to manage different people in your team you can't manage your mm -hmm. team the same yeah. and so understanding the impact that you have 
on getting the most out of a team member is critically important. So if you don't have those, what can be sometimes difficult conversations, I don't think you'll really be able to get the best out of your whole team if you're not understanding how somebody wants to be managed and importantly, how you're making them feel in terms of, am I giving them enough praise or too much praise? Am I inspiring them or not inspiring them, et cetera? Mm. And the third and final thing I would say about being a good leader, and I think this is really important as well, is no matter what level of the organisation you are, if you're a people leader, I think you have to really understand your company's vision, strategy and priorities because your people will look to you to understand what is the company trying to do here or what are our priorities and how do I fit into them? And if you as a leader do not understand your company's strategy, Mm. direction and priorities and able to articulate it, you will either fill your team members with fear or you'll fill them with confidence and inspire them. Mm. So I always say to leaders, even if you're a junior leader, make it your business to understand what your business is trying to do so that you can clearly articulate it to your people to fill them with confidence. You can't just sort of say, oh, I have no idea what those guys, the executive team's doing. I, you know, I don't know what the priorities are. You know, they've changed it. Well, find out. It's your job as a leader to know what that is, to be able to instill that confidence in your people. And I think that's really important. So understanding your company's strategy and priorities, um, really understanding the impact that you have on your people and your leadership brand. Fantastic. Fantastic advice. Um, You know, I have a, I'm also very, very passionate about leadership and I just have a belief that um, so many people are, are so busy doing, doing, doing. Um, and rarely stop long enough to to really think about who they're being as a leader. Um, I think it's such a big opportunity. Can I ask you, Michael, the final question that I ask everybody is, from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership look like and do you think it needs to change? Um, Look, uh, you know, it's hard to generalize because, you know, women are not all the same, right? It's like everybody, we're all different. So depending on your personality, where you are in your career, um, everyone's going to be different. So I think if I try and say what would make brave feminine leadership, um, I would think about it in terms of firstly, stretching yourself. We touched on it a little bit earlier. Yeah actively find ways of stretching yourself, being uncomfortable in that space um, so that you can learn and grow is really important. Second thing I'd say is find your voice. Um, You know, don't sit quietly, put your ideas forward and remember that even if you think it might be a silly idea, part of that idea might be a gem that then other colleagues or you might build on once you articulate it or verbalise it. So just put it out there. Um, And, you know, yeah, sometimes we might say crazy stuff, um, but, you know, sometimes harebrained ideas, um, you know, will sprout other great ideas. So um, find your voice, speak up, share ideas and concerns. When you see something that's not right, speak up. Don't worry about people thinking that you're, you know, um, stuck in the mud or whatever. It, it's really important. And third and final, I'd say, just keep it in threes, Melissa. Um, I'd probably say be yourself. Don't try and be what you think a tough leader needs to be. Um, be yourself because our people that we lead um they can smell bullshit and they can see inauthenticity. Um, and people don't trust people who are not authentic. You know, I, I think people can see right through you when you're not authentic. And so, mm. um, you know, don't try and be um, 
you know, act like, say, a male leader that you had in the past. Just be yourself. And I think um, people will really respect you for it and admire you and want to be led by you. Um, you know, that, that's really important to be yourself and find your voice and, and just stretch yourself. Michael, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and for joining this conversation on Brave Feminine Leadership. I really appreciate it. It's a total pleasure. It's good fun. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Hello there. If you're enjoying the podcast and would love to accelerate your own growth and leadership, then head to bravefeminineleadership.com forward slash brave tips for your gift from me, where I've captured all of the amazing tips and themes that came out of these conversations. I hope they help you feel your brave rising.